Heavenly Father, you are the author of the Word of God. You have inspired it. You have breathed it out. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. I pray today that your Word, as we listen to it, as we absorb it, as we take it in, Lord, that you would speak mightily to us and that you would help us to comprehend your truth and to put it into practice in our daily lives. Lord, would you help me as I bring forth the word of God. We need you. We need your spirit. We need your grace as we come before the throne of grace. Thank you, Father, that we were able to worship you in spirit and truth through the vehicle of music and singing these amazing truths about the greatness and holiness of our mighty God. May those, most, may those truths lodge deeply into our hearts as we go throughout the week and worship you in our daily lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. When you think of what qualifies someone to be a good servant of Christ, as is what our sermon title is for today, and we are going to be carrying on this theme. We started it last week as Ronaldo preached and we will continue on with it in 1 Timothy chapter 4 next week. But when you think of a good servant of Christ, particularly those who are ministers, elders, pastors, those who are leaders in the church, what are some characteristics, what are some traits that immediately come to your mind when you think of a good servant of Christ? We usually think of things like, must be a man who is godly, a man of integrity, one who is above reproach, one who loves the Lord, one who is able to teach, and so forth. But as we continue this theme of what it means to be a good servant of Christ, do we ever think of a good servant of Christ as being one who labors and strives? One who labors and strives even to the point of exhaustion. Now today as we continue to look at this theme, which is extremely important, this will be our primary focus today in 1 Timothy 4, particularly verse 10. Particularly verse 10. A servant, servant of Christ is one who labors and strives hard. And not only that, but why does he labor and strive hard? And contained in verse 10 is the what. A good servant of Christ is one who labors and strives and the why. So let's go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 4. And what I'm going to do, I want to start just to set the table, to set the context here and be reminded of what we looked at last week. And we will start at verse 6 and read all the way till verse 11. <clears throat> Paul speaking or writing to Timothy and to the church as a whole says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourish on the words of the faith <clears throat> and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of Godliness, 
For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 9, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And here is what we're going to focus on today. Verse 10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. Verse 11, Paul says, prescribe and teach these things. So in verse 10, we are picking up this train of thought of Paul's writing in this epistle that Ronaldo preached last Sunday, namely, that which makes someone a good servant of Christ, someone who is an effective, godly, faithful minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul is writing to Timothy, his protege, his disciple in the faith, Timothy himself being a pastor, he is focusing primarily and chiefly on Timothy. Timothy as one who is a servant, a minister, an elder, a pastor, one who is leading and teaching the church there in Ephesus. This is why these short letters are called the pastoral epistles. Paul is giving instruction, very important instruction to Timothy as a pastor on first how he himself must conduct himself and align his life to sound doctrine and then in turn teach that truth to the rest of the church, the household of God and how they ought to conduct themselves. Now, much of what Paul teaches Timothy as a pastor does apply to all believers, irregardless of the fact if you're a pastor or, or not. However, there is a very strong particular emphasis here, especially in chapter 4 and also in chapter 3 when Paul is talking about the qualifications of an elder, that ministers, elders, pastors, those who serve the church of God, these are things that they must especially pay close attention to. If a minister of Christ wants to know how to conduct his life and his ministry and make sure that it is in accordance with the word of God and in order for him to grow in godliness and to please God and live a life that others can emulate, that good servant of Christ must attentively study and apply the instructions here in these letters. Now, none of us is exempt from obeying these teachings of Paul. We all are to be good servants of Jesus Christ. We are all to be nourished on the words of truth and to learn and grow in sound doctrine. And we all must, as we learned in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4, refuse and be aware of and be discerning in regards to false teaching so that we do not fall away from the faith, as some do. We all are, as verses uh, 8, 7, and 8 say in chapter 4, we are all to train ourselves in godliness and to, yes, even be above reproach, as Paul will talk about to the widows in chapter 5. They too are to be above 
reproach and, and are to live lives that are pleasing to God. But because a minister of Jesus Christ is an example of the flock, a model, a teacher of the flock, he must ensure that these things about which Paul speaks are evident by God's grace in his life, doctrine, and ministry. Uh, a minister of Christ is to be an exemplary model to the church in which he is serving. We see this in verse 12 of chapter 4, the second part, where Paul tells Timothy to show yourself an example of those who believe. When speaking to Titus, in Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul tells Titus, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. In Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13, verse 7, the writer says, Remember those who led you, your leaders, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, he says, imitate or mimic their faith. So what's Paul doing here? Paul is putting the onus on Timothy as a servant of Jesus Christ to particularly be absorbed in these things, in his character and doctrine, so that his progress would be evident to all, as verse 15 says. As chapter 5 of 1 Timothy says, verse 17, he calls the elders, the servants of Christ, to lead well, to lead well. Because of Timothy's public ministry of reading, exhorting, and we'll get to this part of verse chapter 4, and teaching scripture and living a life that comports to godliness, Timothy, and by extension, all leaders in the church are to be an example to the flock of God. Even Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he's talking to fellow elders that they are to be examples to the flock. What that man of God teaches and how he lives must align with the word of God so that those who are listening and watching might grow in godliness and have someone they can look to as an example. When they see that servant, they can say that is a model, albeit not perfectly, but that is a physical model of someone I can look to as an example of someone following Jesus Christ. And plus, those who need salvation are hearing the truth of the gospel preached faithfully by the good servant of Christ. The one upon Timothy, they, the elders laid his, their hands on him so that he would carry out this work in the church. Now, last week, Ronaldo asked the very important question, and we're going to pick up with this question, what makes someone a godly or good servant of Jesus Christ? What makes someone a good servant of Jesus Christ? And he gave three answers to that question from verses 6 to 9, particularly uh, verses 6, 7, and 8. And he said, number one, be an invested student of Scripture, Make it your priority to know the word of God. Learn, study, grow. 
Number two, discern and avoid false teaching. And number three, seek to be disciplined, primarily in the area of godliness. Be devoted to God. Live for God. Know God. Obey God in all things. And today we're going to look at the number four trait or quality of that which makes a good servant of Jesus Christ, specifically a church leader. And this is important really for all of us. Okay, whether you're a church leader or not, it's important for all of you to know this because we as the body of Christ have to, have to understand what a leader, what a good servant of Christ looks like and what he must be like in his character, in his doctrine, and his ministerial responsibilities. So this portion of 1 Timothy really hones in on that. And the number four trait is this in verse 10. A good minister of Jesus Christ labors and strives in his ministry and in his life. A good minister of Christ labors and strives in his ministry and in his life. The what and the why. Why does he labor and strive? Now, let's look at verse 10. Focus on this. It is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, like I said from the outset, laboring and striving for the minister of Christ is not something that we might consider a necessary trait for them. But it it is something that we see over and over in the lives and ministry of Jesus Christ when he was on the earth, of the Apostle Paul, and others in the Bible. And as you peruse church history, we see countless men and women working diligently, laboriously for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A good servant of Jesus Christ is a very hard worker. He's not a hired hand. He's not someone who considers the ministry as a means to get rich or to sit around all day or simply wants the title as elder and to receive accolades from people. But a godly minister is one who decidedly labors hard for the kingdom of God. He gives his all. He even considers what he does as a sacrifice because it will be and it is a sacrifice. Paul uses two words here in verse 10 to describe his and Timothy's efforts as ministers of the gospel and of those who serve the church. It's very straightforward. They labor and they strive. Laboring and striving have a different idea than what sometimes we might be used to. We hear this phrase being passed around in Christian circles that you are to let go and let God, which, as we know, that phrase is not in the Bible. But if understood incorrectly and we use that principle, it could be taken to mean that as Christians, we do not exert any effort as believers to grow in godliness. Uh, to do the work of the Lord that he has called us to do. Now, yes, we are to entirely trust in the power of the Holy Spirit and his grace to work in us to accomplish these things such as godliness and to accomplish the work that he has given us. But 
for apart from him, we can do nothing, right? As John 15, 5 says. But as we rely on the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we labor and we strive. We see this in verse 10 and in a number of other passages where Paul and others exhibit this position of working very, very hard in their ministry and in their pursuit of growing in Christ-likeness. Let's look at that some more in detail. This word labor, labor. We might be thinking of Labor Day where we take off a day from our work. But this word labor means to toil and struggle to the point of exhaustion. In other words, it means to work intensely. Uh, There is blood, there is sweat, and there are tears involved with doing the work of God. And laboring in such a way is important and necessary. Why? Because because there are eternal ramifications for what we do for the Lord. We do not work hard to achieve eternal life, to achieve salvation, for we already have received that through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, but we so labor because of eternity, because of the eternal weightiness of people who need to come to know God, and because of the important focus of our life in conforming to godliness. These are things that are worthwhile striving and laboring for. What we do now affects eternity. What we do now affects eternity. And now, of course, and we saw that in verse 8, that growing in godliness doesn't have just eternal ramifications, but also present we labor to the point of exhaustion and the word strive as Paul puts them very closely together has a similar meaning but with a little added definition strive means to exert oneself even to the point of struggle with great intensity with great passion This word strive can be used as an athletic term from which we get the word agonize. Have you ever thought about when you work for the Lord that you're agonizing over it? You're you're applying yourself with great and intense passion. Think of an Olympian. Think of an Olympian who strives and gives his all to what he does, to his sport, even agonizing over it so that he might win the gold prize. He every day trains and practices and sweats to the point where by the end of the day he falls hard on his bed. Was it hard work? Yes. Was it worth it? Absolutely, especially if if he, he wins a gold medal. Anything worthwhile in life requires hard work, does it not? And a good servant of Christ especially labors and strives, even to the point of exhaustion, even to the point of weariness for the purpose of godliness in his own life, public and private, and for doing the work of God that God has called him to. It is said of Martin Luther in the 1500s, the great reformer, one who, after he got saved, worked 
excessively hard in the area of lecturing all day, preaching the word of God, teaching others, discipling, having a table talk even at his house, talking to people about the Lord, that by the end of the day, he literally fell over onto his bed. He labored and he strived for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The words labor and strive here are in the present tense. Uh, This is something that we do continually. It's an ongoing effort. It's something that when we wake up, we put our hands to the plow, set our eyes to the work that God has called us to do, and work very hard at it. Ministers have to determinedly take their work very seriously. Uh, This isn't playing games. This isn't messing around. Eldership, pastoring, we're talking about teaching people, teaching souls the truth of God so that they might know God and grow in God. They have to take their work seriously. They have to be prepared to work hard. If anybody wants to be a prospective elder, a servant of Jesus Christ, they have to understand that they won't be sitting around all day being lazy and eating Cheetos. Being a a, a laborer, one who strives, you have to take this very seriously for this is God's work. This is kingdom work. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, the next chapter, He says, the elders who rule well, who lead well, who govern the church well, are to be considered worthy of double honor. Okay? So all elders are to govern, lead, and and serve well and take their work very seriously. But then Paul goes on and says, especially those who work hard, same word as labor, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Elders don't just work hard at serving, at helping others, at preaching and teaching, but they also work hard at praying, spending time on their knees, not just a quick few minutes, but throughout the week as we see Paul doing over and over, constantly lifting people up in his prayers. It can be easy for a servant of Christ to get slothful, unmotivated in his ministry, There are many things vying for our attention as ministers of Christ. There are many distractions out there that seek to lead us away from the good work the Lord has appointed us to do. But Peter said, thinking of 1 Peter 5 again, Peter, the apostle, said that elders must be eager to serve One thing that I really, really appreciate and that drew my attention to Grace Community Fellowship is is the leaders here and, and how they are eager to serve. Even the men who have another job, another vocation, they work hard, they give their all, they are eager to give their energy to the church not for their own sake, not so that people would recognize them, but so that people would grow in Christ and be discipled and to know the gospel. And with that in mind, I would just say, please pray for us. Pray for us leaders that we would take the word of God in a continued seriousness, 
and that we wouldn't get lethargic and apathetic and indifferent to the work of God. We need the grace of God to be able to do wholeheartedly what he has commanded us to do as ministers and to not have a cavalier attitude as so many do as I've seen in the ministry. That, you know, I'm just an elder just to um, be here on Sundays. Um, I really don't do anything else throughout the week. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I just enjoy the title, right? Ministers, put your hand to the plow and work hard. We have great examples in scripture, uh, none of which is, you know, none of the least of which is Jesus Christ. He is our greatest example. He arduously labored for the kingdom of God. Uh, he woke up early. He walked great lengths to preach the gospel, even if it was only to one person. And oftentimes, for example, we see him exhausted by the end of the day, such as in John chapter 4, where he is sitting at the well and he starts speaking to a Samaritan woman and he asks her for a drink. We see him even foregoing food for that moment just so he can reach her and the other Samaritans with the truth. We see Jesus praying, agonizing all night, even sometimes skipping a night's rest so that he could pray for his disciples and who they were going to be, men who also needed to take up the mantle to work hard to preach the gospel. Of course, we see the Apostle Paul toiling to the point of even death, becoming all things to all men so that he might save some, as 1 Corinthians says. Just consider 2 Corinthians. Go there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul gives us a look into his ministry in which he labored hard. 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23. And this is in the context of Paul talking about the false apostles, false teachers, who were men who were lazy and sought to just make money and a name for themselves. And Paul says, starting in verse 23 of chapter 11, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, listen, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Dangers. Verse 27, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. What a vigorous laboring to the point of exhaustion and even persecution, all so that he could get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul gave his life 
for Christ, his life for Christ. Consider Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Paul says, we proclaim him. That's the reason why he labored and strived. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Here's the so that, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this person purpose also I labor, same word, striving, same word, according to his power which mightily works within me. He labored and he strived so that people would grow in Christ and hear the proclamation of the gospel. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Just one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10. This is after Paul talked about the primary purpose for which he came to Corinth and the main message he spoke to the Corinthians, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 10 of chapter 15, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I what? Here's that same word again, labored. Labored at preaching the gospel even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And you see in both of these, Colossians and 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul depended on the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. He never did anything in his own strength. In fact, he boasted in his weaknesses so that he would be more reliant and dependent on the power of God to work in him, but that that did not mean that he neglected laboring and striving for the gospel because it was worth it because of the eternal weightiness of it because souls need to be saved and souls need to know God and souls need to grow in Christ, that for which God has created us. Paul harnessed the energy and the power of God so that he might labor and strive. Now a pastor, an elder, like Timothy, must be one who works hard. There's no doubt about it. Strives diligently because really it's one of the most important works anybody can do. That's not to put pastoring and eldering and that kind of work above other type of works, but if you think about it, ministers of Christ are dealing with eternal things. A lazy pastor or an uncommitted elder really is an oxymoron. A lazy pastor, for whatever reason he is lazy or indifferent, I don't think truly recognizes the eternal scope and value of the work with which he has been entrusted to be a steward of the things of God. I would even go so far as to say this. A lazy, non-committed person who wants to be an elder, who doesn't want to labor and strive, they should not be in the ministry. Now, as I say all of that, and you might be thinking, well, Michael's talking about just elders and pastors and ministers within the, within the realm of the church. Well, I'm off the hook. <laughs> I don't have to labor and strive. 
au contraire. Now, this work must definitely be done by pastors, no doubt about it. And when I say that too, that doesn't mean that pastors, elders, and leaders should not rest. It's not that they can't do any other enjoyable things in life recreationally. But all Christians as well must give themselves entirely to growing in godliness and serving the Lord. Okay? Uh, we see examples of this. Go with me to Romans chapter 16 in just a couple of verses. Romans 16. Paul talking, writing at the end of this phenomenal letter to the Christians in Rome. And he lists a bunch of people at the end, those who are believers, those who have ministered with them, those who have been a blessing to him. And in Romans 16, look at verse 6. I mean, these are just people, we don't really know who they are, but they're just regular believers. He says in verse 6, Greet Mary, who has, here's the same word, worked hard for you. She labored intensely for other believers. Go to verse 12, same chapter. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord to the point of exhaustion, laboring for the sake of other believers. Go to 1 Corinthians again with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul is calling attention to those who worked hard for the Lord for the sake of the kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting at verse 15. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Devoted. That's a different word, but they were fully committed. They signed the dotted line and said, I am all in to working and serving the Lord for the sake of the body of Christ and for the glory of God. But he goes on in verse 16, that you also may be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work, and here's that word, labors, labors, for everyone who labors and strives for the sake of of the gospel, for the service of the saints. Now, all of us here today, we all have a purpose that God has given us. Whether you're behind a pulpit, whether you're an elder or a deacon, or whether you're a school teacher, a mother, a father, a student, whether you go to your job at a restaurant, whatever you do, you do heartily. You labor and strive ultimately for the Lord. He is the one watching you, as we've been learning in Colossians in the, um, in the fellowship groups. We are laboring because the Lord's eyes are on us and we want to do it for him. We want to please him. We want people to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul and Timothy, and this is what we're going to focus on in the rest of this verse. Okay, we talked about the what. What makes a good servant of Christ? And out of many, one of the things is they labor and strive. They work hard. But the thing is, a good servant of Christ doesn't just work hard for the sake of a paycheck, okay? For the sake of a paycheck. 
even though later on in 1 Timothy, in the same neighborhood as 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, we already looked at that, um, those who work hard at preaching and teaching is worthy of his wages, as verse 18 said. They should be paid so that they can commit to doing this on a regular, ongoing, full-time basis. But there is even an, a loftier motivation for, for why we labor and strive in this great work. What is that? Well, look at the rest of verse 10 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. It is for this we labor and strive because, because, here's the why, we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. I think some of you are waiting for me to get to that part of the verse. Now this verse can be challenging, okay? Savior of all men, especially of believers. And I'm gonna do my best in the next 15, 20 minutes before we have our right hand of fellowship to talk about this. And I want us to pay very close attention if you haven't already. <laughs> but even though that this verse has been challenging, the Savior of all men, what does that mean? Especially of all believers. And maybe perhaps you're sitting here and you go, I've never heard of this challenge before. That's okay. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, this has been one of those verses that people have gone to and tried to concoct a theological position based on perhaps their, uh, their, their, their understanding of theology. Um, and, and, I, and to be quite honest, I don't think I'm going to settle that debate in today's sermon, and quite frankly, that is not my intention to do so. Um, and while I definitely hold to Reformed theology, especially the doctrines of grace, those things that talk about the sovereignty of God in relation to our salvation. Uh, this verse can help us understand that, uh, those theological nu nuances. I don't think we have to turn to verse 10, especially the second half, to turn this into a debate. Uh, there are plenty of other verses that speak on these important issues in relation to the doctrines of grace. And no matter what interpretation one takes of this verse, just like any verse in the Bible, it must be preceded by much study, okay? A cursory reading of this verse or of any verse for that matter, especially those verses that can be challenging, that, that might seem to go one direction, but that's not really what that verse means, um, we have to be careful of not coming to a hasty conclusion just from a cursory glance. We have to dig down. What is Paul really talking about here? What, what is the context? And as I studied this verse this week and have read uh, numerous commentaries, uh, there were a variety of interpretations, understandings of this text, even from amongst men that I greatly respect. There were even reputable commentaries that decided to skip over this verse altogether. I mean, that's one way to deal with a verse that you don't want to deal with. Just don't talk about it. I could have done that, okay? And we could have just talked about laboring and striving. But I don't want to do that. I want us to see the big picture of this verse. Okay, we focused our attention on laboring and striving. That is so important. Um, and even some people over skip, skip over that and go straight to Savior of all men, okay? 
Um, and we, we, we see that people can have their favorite verses to argue for what they hold to be true. And that's not necessarily a, a wrong thing to do. I certainly have convictions regarding this verse and other verses related to it. But as, the, as a student of God's word, I want to render due diligence in trying to understand what Paul means here in context. In context, in this specific letter, as he is exhorting Timothy and by extension other pastors to be good servants of Christ. And I also want to, and I hope you all take up this kind of mindset, we need to ap- approach a verse like this with humility. Knowing that not everything in scripture is always easy to grasp and requires much laboring and striving to arrive at a proper interpretation. Even the Apostle Peter said that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Not impossible, but they can be hard to understand. And many people try to distort what Paul writes. And that, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, in case you're wondering. Now, this portion of scripture is profoundly theological, and I want to look at that, but I don't want to isolate this verse so much so that our understanding of it is severed from the context. Okay, all of that to say, that was like another introduction to this verse. What does Paul say after he said, for it is for this we labor and strive? He provides a reason for their laboring and striving, and especially the area of gospel ministry, preaching the gospel, and also serving the church. He provides a because statement. He says, because we have fixed our hope on the living God. The reason Paul is saying we will labor and strive, that we work excessively in these areas, is because of God and the firm hope that we have in him. In essence, what Paul is saying is we work hard at pastoring, preaching, and teaching and being a good and godly servant because God is the only source of eternal life. And it is entirely worth laboring and striving for him and the eternal life that he offers to others. See, Paul's hope, Timothy's hope, my hope, the elder's hope, any pastor's hope, your hope, which is our settled confidence, our settled conviction, is on God alone who lives forever and ever and who is in all the world the only Savior. For there is only one Savior. Paul and Timothy and any other godly servant, they are not the saviors of men. Only the living God is. God is the source of life for all men. He is the only creator. He is alive forever and is not like, as Paul and Timothy knew so well, the false Greeks, Greek gods and idols that were dead and impotent and unable to save anyone or give eternal life. It is only the living God who has the power, the ability, and the prerogative to save sinners those who believe in him for eternal life. Paul has made a similar point regarding this in verse 17 of chapter 1 of this same letter. Verse 17, he says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
God is the only God who is unable to die, who is the king of the ages, who is everlasting to everlasting. This God, this only God, he has no equal. And there is no savior but this God. Look at chapter 2, verse 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy. Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. So to make it clear, there's only one living God and that one living God is the only Savior that anyone can come to for salvation for there is no other God. In fact, I want to add this. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4, our passage. When you read verse 10 closely, you see that Paul is referring to God the Father, God in general. In fact, in that verse, he doesn't even use Jesus' name. He's talking about God in general. He says God is the Savior. Now, is Jesus Savior? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's veritable truth. And Paul makes that absolutely clear in other parts of the pastoral epistles in all his letters. But in the pastoral epistles, one thing that is unique is Paul frequently refers to God in general or God the Father also as Savior. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Go to chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Please flip all the way over to Titus, chapter 1, where Paul continues this idea of God in general being the Savior. Titus chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes, I thank God whom I... Oh, I'm sorry, wrong one. Titus 1, 3. But at the proper time manifested, God manifested, even in his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Look at Titus 2, verse 10. not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Look at chapter 3, verse 4 of Titus. You're getting the point. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He saved us. God saved us. And God is the only Savior. Every person of the Trinity actually saves and has a part in the salvation of sinners. God the Father sent the Son who appeared and died on the cross. And the Holy Spirit convicts, regenerates, and sanctifies all of which, all of these things are essential components of our salvation. 
But the, the emphasis here in 1 Timothy 4 is on God being the Savior in a soteriological sense, in a redemptive sense, that he alone is the only one who can save sinners from their sin, from his judgment, and grant them eternal life because he is the only living God. Therefore, in light of this, In the first part of verse 10, we labor and strive. It is because of the hope we have in the living God who is the only Savior of all men. Of all men. Let's talk about Savior of all men just for a moment here. I might have to pick this up a little bit next week, if you don't mind, just so we don't brush over this with just, just quickness. But let's look at that designation, Savior of all men. We cannot ignore that. When we hear that term, one thing we have to rule out from the outset is this. Paul is not asserting universalism here when he says that God is the Savior of all men. He is not suggesting that all people eventually get saved. And all people everywhere end up in heaven regardless of whether they believed or not. Perhaps you've heard this teaching before. No, that is not right at all because not everyone will go to heaven. It, that idea totally contradicts the rest of scripture that many will actually go to an eternal hell as a judgment from God because of people's sins and their unbelief toward Christ. The Bible says wide is the gate that leads to destruction. A, a huge multitude of humanity will be cast into the lake of fire, as Revelation 20 says. So Paul is not teaching universalism here. Otherwise, that would contradict all of his teachings and the rest of the Bible. See, anytime you see something like Savior of all men, you have to compare scripture with scripture. You can't just say, oh, it says here that, that everyone is eventually going to get saved and God just saves everyone and everyone's going to go to heaven and sing kumbaya. Can't do that. Not all people will be saved. Another thing that this savior of all men does not say necessarily, some people use this particular phrase to talk about the extent of the atonement, okay? Meaning, who did Jesus die for? Did he die for every single human being in the world or did he die only for the chosen, the elect? Now, there are plentiful other verses that speak on that, but I don't think necessarily that this designation, Savior of all men, necessarily deals specifically with that, even though it does to a point. Now, others say that Savior here can mean that God, in a general sense, is the preserver. He's the sustainer of life for all people, whether they are believers or not, but that he's the redemptive Savior in a higher sense to only those who are believing, okay? And so that's true, but actually when you see that word Savior here in 1 Timothy, and in 2 Timothy and in Titus, almost every time Paul uses that word, he is speaking of God being the Savior in a redemptive sense. The fact that he is a Savior of souls. 
It is true that God is a savior in a general sense, that he sends rain and sends the sun to shine on all people, but here in 1 Timothy, Paul is talking about savior in the soteriological sense, in the redemptive sense. So you might ask, what then, Paul, are you really getting at here when you say God is the savior of all men? Well, let's not forget the context. One of the main things Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy is what? False teachers who are assaulting the church in Ephesus and teaching multiple ways of salvation and how to remain saved. Some of the teachers were Judaizers saying that you must be circumcised. Some were saying that it's only the Jews who are going to be saved. Some, you know, they were assaulted by the multitude of Greek gods in Ephesus and these Ephesians were thinking there are multiple ways to get saved. There were all these competing and false views of salvation in Ephesus and in the church, but what Paul is essentially saying is this. Look, there is only one God. He is the only living God, and it is on him that we have placed our hope and will continue to place our hope because it is only he alone who can save, because he is the only saver that this world has. especially for those who believe. This is definitely worth the hard work and even the persecution we face because it reaps eternal benefits because men and women who believed as a result are saved by God, the only Savior who actually saves them from sin, death, Satan, and judgment. That's pretty straightforward, I would hope, right? God is the only Savior who saves. And it is for those, as Paul says, especially believers, those who actually put their trust in him, who repent and believe that are saved. Furthermore, salvation is not exclusive to only one group of people or one nationality. God is the Savior of all people. All kinds of people, not only the Jews, as we were learning today from the book of Acts, but the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and it extended to the very ends of the earth. All kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can be saved. No one can find salvation outside of the living God and by extension, Jesus Christ. There is no other savior to turn to. Do we understand that? There is no other savior to turn to. Humanity has only one savior, period. This is why Paul and others labored so hard, so intensely to get the gospel to the end of the world. Paul didn't know who God has chosen in eternity past. God, Paul didn't know who was going to believe, but he went and proclaimed the truth for everyone to hear. And I'm just going to finish with this, and we're going to pick up a little bit more with this next week, okay? Because there's a couple of other things I want you to notice here as we talk about what it means to be a good servant of Christ. But if you are sitting here today, And even though we were talking for the last 15, 20 minutes about these theological details, 
and laboring and striving, there's only one reason why I'm up here right now laboring and striving over this text and even sweating a little bit, (laughs) is have you believed? Do you realize that there is only one Savior that you can turn to? And it's this living God about whom Paul is speaking. It is worth getting up here week after week telling everyone about Jesus Christ because because it's only in him that salvation is found for there is no other name under heaven. There is no mediator other than Christ. He's the only way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through him. You cannot find salvation in any other religion, any other practice, but through the living God alone who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believed. And the question I want to finish with today is, have you believed? Your eternal destiny banks on that. You could die today. Where you are going depends on if you have believed in this living God today. This is the scope of godliness because Jesus Christ is godliness. He is the gospel. Have you put your trust in him? And that's what I want to leave with you today in the living God. Even though we are talking about laboring and striving, it is for this that we labor and strive so that people might be saved. Amen? Please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this even one singular verse, which is profound. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the ability to labor and strive hard after you and to know you and to preach the gospel and to tell the world about you. It is worth it. I'm sure Paul would do everything again because it was worth getting the gospel to people to the ends of the earth. May we too, especially the leaders here, labor and strive and work hard for the glory of Christ, for godliness, for the truth of the gospel to be disseminated to the world. And Lord, I pray right now that people, if they are not in Christ, would believe in you who is the only savior that this world has. May they trust in you right now and repent of their sins and cling to you as the only savior who can rescue them from their sin, from eternal death, from your judgment and bring you to them, bring them to you, Lord. Now, Lord, bless the rest of our service as we welcome new members, those who have put their trust in Christ and are part of this local body. And we do all these things for the glory of your name. And it's in your name we pray, amen.